It's the Face of Chicago Business Podcast, introducing you to the stories behind the faces, focused on fixing today's problems with thoughtful leadership and purposeful living. Sit down with us as we get to know the individuals who make our city second to none. How you guys doing? I'm Tony Arce, and this is the Face of Chicago Business Podcast. Today, I'm here with Salvador Cicero. Salvador, thank you so much for being here. Claro, buenos dias. How are you? Buenos dias. Quite a story you've got, brother. Um, you know, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> but uh, but obviously, you're not originally from Chicago. No. Right? So why don't you tell us where, where you are from originally? Where were you born and, and right. kind of the story behind that? Okay. Well, I was born in San Francisco, California. My parents were working there for the Mexican consulate. And uh, my parents went back to Mexico. So I grew up in Santa Monica, which is in Tlalnepantla, which is the municipality next to Mexico City. So in the Mexico City metro area. Nice. And so that's where I grew up till I was 15. Then uh, mom got a job in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. So we went over there and uh, I went to college over there. And what did your mom, or what did she do? Uh, so my mother worked for the Mexican Foreign Service. She was a consular officer. So as what did my dad. Okay. That's how they met working. My dad retired. Uh, and so at this point in time, we just went with uh, my, my dad and I went along with my mom. So yeah, that's where we. That's where I did college. Okay. And so so yeah. now high school. You told me uh, you graduated pretty early, right? You were young. Yeah, I only did two years of high school. I was uh, <laughs> just turned seventeen, and so then right on to college. That was quite an experience. Wow. But I, I enjoyed college a lot. I didn't, I didn't understand the high school culture, so I did a lot of really fun things without knowing that they were like you're not supposed to do them kind of thing. <laughs> like I didn't know that you're supposed to stick within certain groups of people. So You're I everywhere. had friends, yeah, now, now that we're older and that we're all friends on Facebook, like my friends are like the cheerleading squad and football players and the people from the Glee Club. And so yeah, like yeah. none of them fit into one mold. So I didn't know <laughs> I was supposed to just hang out with the Mexican people. <laughs> hey, that's awesome. Um, you fit in everywhere. Yeah. And so it was interesting. And I remember that you might find this funny when I first came here. The, this Mexican friend of mine uh, asked me, he's like, hey, how come you're in that uh, white club? I'm like, what white club? What do you mean? You know, the international club. But I'm international. I'm from Mexico. He's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do I mean? Mexico is another country. And I just came to the United States. So it's international. Right, <laughs> and it right. was just funny because in his mind, um, only people that were, you know, the middle class and uh, white people were in this club. Interesting. So I was involved with that club. And yes, I was only one of two Mexican people in that <laughs> club, to be fair. Um, but there were all of these things that I did not know I wasn't supposed to do. Sure. Because I had never been told that I was different or that um, I wasn't supposed to be successful because I was Mexican. Interesting, or, yeah. I didn't have that mentality and that really helped me. In fact, when people would try to discriminate me, I didn't even understand what they were doing. So it was kind of, it was kind of funny that when I think back on it. So, so now, what, what was it like, uh, you know, having been born in the United States and having, I, I wouldn't say roots because it was because your parents were in San Francisco, right? right? They, were, they were working there. Right, yeah, right. We had no roots or connection to it other than that. Yeah. So, so as far as when you went back, was it just, I mean, you're Mexican, you're living well, in Mexico? and I am like every Mexican-American, right? Sure. Uh, we're not here nor there. When I was in Mexico, oh, you're a gringo. And when I'm here, I was Mexican. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is just the, that's the cross that we all have to that's, bear. Yep, yep. Um, and so I'm an immigrant in my own country. Absolutely. That's funny, um, yeah. Yeah. Del otro lado, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, it's good. I think it's opened up a lot of doors for me and it's helped sure. me understand and uh, a lot of the people that I serve, right? Uh, and so 
So it's it's that's just the the <laughs> card I was dealt. So now you're a lawyer now. Yes. But you got you had quite the journey to get to this point, right? Um, Correct. You were telling me a little bit. You went to New Mexico, um, but you stayed there because mom said right. So my mother. So we even though my parents were diplomats, right? They didn't understand the United States in many ways. They were very Mexican. They didn't, you know, it's not like we had a, a plan like, oh, you're going to apply to all these different schools and colleges and things. My mom was like, no, you're not going back to Mexico. So uh, just apply to the University of New Mexico. And, uh, and I did. And it was great because I, by happenstance, they had an amazing Latin American studies program. It was one of the best in the nation. It still is. And you said it was a brand new program in general, right? Back then, I mean, it was a fairly new program. I, they were only less than maybe 10 schools. And the schools were like UT Austin, University of Chicago, Yale, and us, right? <laughs> so it's kind <laughs> wow. of like one of the places to be for that. Um, and so I benefited from that. Sure. And, and the funny thing is that the first year out, and they gave me a scholarship to go back to Mexico for the summer. So my parents <laughs> were like, okay, fine, you got a scholarship, you, you can go, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, I traveled a lot. I also went to France on exchange when I was there. So I, I took every opportunity I could when I was in college. That's amazing. Uh, I joined a fraternity. So I, I, my experience was very American from that perspective. Yeah. Right? yeah. But it seems like you benefited from the relationships that, that it was there. Because you were telling me, too, it wasn't just... Your normal fraternity. I mean, you guys were ranked second in GPA amongst even. Yeah, it's 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 a great group. We're still all together. We had a reunion um, a couple of years ago. Uh, a great group of people. I think that those of us who've had the great opportunity to participate in a fraternity and really um, had positive people. Everybody's experience is different, right? Sure. Um, I mean, we partied a lot, like you know, people think that we do. It was but, networking, right? But it was, yeah, social networking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, we drank, but there was nobody doing drugs, for example. Sure. Uh, we had a lot of athletes in the fraternity. And so that's why the mentality was more like, you know, they had the ski trips and the golf people, the cheerleading squad, right? Uh, so it was an interesting uh, mix of people. And we're still good friends. And thanks to that is how I ended up going to law school. It's amazing. Because uh, like I was telling you, one, yeah. of, my, one of my friends... Um, uh, Ronnie Gavaldon organized a march to keep the ethnic centers open. Right sure. now, I had never even been to the ethnic centers, uh, but you knew it was important to, to the. I community. knew it was important to the community, and and I was like, let's go, let's do this. Right, it, it was the right thing to do, and uh, we went. And after we went, I got a call from somebody out of Ohio State saying, "Hey, you know, we're out there, we're looking for people. Somebody told me that you're very involved with the school, and they gave us your name." Uh, and they said, you know, if you do all these different things, um, you can get to Ohio State. And if you get in, no promises, if you get in, we might give you scholarships for these different programs. And I did go. I did get in. Uh, I went to uh, law school on a foreign language and area, sp foreign language and area studies uh, fellowship wow. and an activity scholarship. And um, it, it really changed my life. So that goes to show you those Buckeyes recruit for everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing. And it's benefited you to have that education, too, because of the route uh, that you took. It wasn't a very traditional one after you graduated law school, right? Right. So what I did, my plan all along was to join the Foreign Service, right? That's mm -hmm. what I knew. And uh, like I told you, I, I, um, I've been a musician my whole life. So my parents discouraged that part of my life. I mean, they encouraged me to be a musician and learn to play and compose, right? So um, I'm not a great performer, but I like to compose music. Sure. So my dad was like, nah, you're going to have to go to law school because you got to end, you're getting a free ride. So and at, do this, that. at this point, your parents are now in Chicago, though, right? Yeah, my mom, my mom got transferred to Chicago when I was still in college. Right, and right. so my parents had moved to Chicago. She worked here at the consulate, the old consulate on 300 North Michigan, at which I later worked. 
Wow. So that was that was an interesting turn of events. But um, so yeah, so I went to law school in uh, Ohio State. It's a very solid school, so I got a very good education. And right out of law school, I had an opportunity to come intern in Chicago. And um, I was involved with some litigation that Mexico was doing back then. So we did that. And thanks to that knowledge, I was able to get this uh, opportunity in Chicago. And I came here. And, and uh, my father, unfortunately, had passed away. He, uh, got, yeah, he got cancer through uh, law school. So law school was tough to deal with that. Uh, but every family deals with challenges, right? That was our challenge at Absolutely. the time. And um, so... I came back and stayed with my mom. So they worked out great from that perspective. I got to be with mom and also have the job that I always wanted, right, from the legal perspective. Right. And then I got promoted to be the chief for legal affairs and got very involved with that at the consulate. We did many interesting things among them, you know, um, fought a lot with the Department of Children and Family Services. We drafted a memorandum of understanding with them. Uh, we got very involved with the uh, death penalty movement here in uh, in Illinois, mm -hmm. and we were at the center of the controversy back in the early 2000s with that. And from there, I was sent to Mexico in, in the midst of a little bit of controversy of a fight between the U.S. and Mexico in my case. Um, it was a pretty big deal. I mean, this was, this was not just you got transferred. This was No, this was that they, they kicked me out of the country, yeah. <laughs> They kicked me out of the country. You pissed some people to, off. We did quite a in few. In a good way, though, right? I mean, well, for I, I think for the right reasons because I didn't do something bad. We I were was malicious. Doing, it was you, you thought right. you were doing the right thing. I, I know we were well, doing well, the right thing for sure. Yeah, and uh, thanks to that, you know, people like um, Mario Flores came out. Recently, Gabriel Solache, which was one of our cases that we worked just last year, wow. uh, his case got reactivated. He finally got a new trial. Finally, you know, getting the justice that he deserved. Sure. Um, one of the things um, that one learns as an attorney is not to be emotionally involved. It's hard when, you know, you take a personal hit, right, for the choices that you make on behalf of other people. And, um, but I'm very happy to see that as slow as the American justice system is, I am a big believer in it. And uh, the choices that I made were based on my commitment as an attorney, an American trained attorney to our constitution and our system sure. of justice. Yeah. So, you know, I don't regret that at all. Uh, but, you know, um, so yes, we got invited to go to Mexico. <laughs> and in Mexico, I got um, I was director for political affairs in the Communities Abroad Bureau. And that was an amazing opportunity. I got to work for President Fox. Wow. I got to work for uh, Minister Castaneda. Um, and we got to run a lot of things that people are familiar with here like uh, driver's licenses for undocumented people um, we had to deal with health uh, we had health we had sports we had communities abroad all of the uh, clubs so it was uh, it was a big um, a big job and I did that for two years managing about 150 people wow. worldwide and people. 70 and 70 under me there at uh, in Mexico City. And you're young doing this. I mean, this is I was 29. I was the I think in the history of the foreign service I was probably the second or third youngest ever director wow. at that at that time. It's amazing. So I was right right up there then and um, and I had an amazing team. I'm still friends with them. They were very hard working people. And so when people talk about corruption in Mexico and things, I can tell you that I have worked with some very dedicated public servants in Mexico. People seem to forget that there are 110 million Mexicans and the country wouldn't work if 
nobody did their job, right? right so right. there's a lot of good people. Well, people want to focus always on the negative. They don't want to talk about the positive things that, right. that we do, and, <coughs> and especially when you have so much controversy around so many other things. Mm-hmm. It's, it's easy to point out the flaws. Right. I, I mean, it is it is true, though. There is a lot of corruption <laughs> in Mexico. Uh, we're not going to say there is not. Right, right. Uh, but there is a balance, I think. And I think that um, the basic things that need to work, work better every day. And so I'm happy to see that. So after I did that for a couple of years, I got a promotion and I got an advisory job, right? The cushy job. And my job was to do policy and I was assigned the topic that nobody wanted. And and when I tell this story, uh, people are like, really? So the undersecretary that I work for called me in and said, here, here's the topic nobody wants. It's called human trafficking. Wow. And so that's how I became one and, of and, the... And at this point, where were you at then? In Mexico City. Okay. So I was in Mexico City working at the foreign ministry. And um, and Undersecretary Olamendi said, so you're the new guy. I don't really know you, but here's human trafficking. Nobody wants this. So wow. it's just none of the advisors want you get it. So that's how we started working on human trafficking. At the time, nobody knew it would be one of the most important human rights issues to rise at the turn of the century. Absolutely. And I, I dove right in. I started writing about it. Uh, I had some theories about how things were happening right sure. i was very concerned about the united states massively deporting hondurans and el salvadorans and how that was in turn creating criminal elements that were being uh, over that would eventually overrun the police capacities now at this point the what you're writing from it's since there's really not much out there on the topic at this point is it really just from you know the work the the, the research that you're doing and what correct this, this i was final. doing at the point in time i was doing original research because my job was to to analyze the system to look at the international conventions to see how mexico was interacting what were their duties under the 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 law because they had to be ratified by the senate to recommend the senate to ratify it to give him a list of things to do now in 2003 Nobody was listening to us, right? Because we were, this was very new. Brand Nobody, new. right? It was just kind of up and coming. So the same recommendations that we recommended in 2003 were adopted by the Senate in 2007 after I had left Mexico and I had come to the United States to work for the American Bar Association as an expert in human trafficking. Wow. So what was interesting is that nobody wanted this thing. I dove in. I found some interesting things. I had my theories. They proved to be, unfortunately, true. Uh, right? true mm-hmm. Because the United States has caused, in many ways, the humanitarian crisis that we see in Central America. And my focus was not on the immigration aspect of it, although I talked about immigration in the deportation context, but how... All of this criminal element was organizing and on their way back to the United States by moving drugs and guns, how they were uh, encountering the human trafficking and incorporating it into their business. Wow. So that's what my, my focus was. So we took that. And when I came back to the States, my job was to run projects in South America and in Ecuador. And how did you end up back in the States? What was that? I, I, <laughs> I ended up back in the States because uh, the fellows at the American Bar Association interceded on my behalf. And because I had began to work closely with people at the U.S. Department of State who saw it fit that maybe I was not as bad a guy as they had originally thought. Now, now, now you mentioned that you had published something too, right? I had, I had. So at this Did point that, that in time, help, uh, of course. So this is what's really funny about it. So so I get given this topic 
And then the undersecretary, I said, well, what else do you want me to do? And she's like, no, 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 let's see that. You got six months. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do for six months with one single co topic? Right, right. Remember, I had been running a bureau before this. So the level <laughs> of activity, uh, my level of, of, uh, of, um, responsibility. of responsibility and need to do something and being engaged, uh, I didn't know what to do with myself. So yeah. after a month, I finished my first report. I turned it in and then uh, um, like Dr. Dr. Vargas, who's a, a retired general friend of our, the family, said to me, you should write something. What are you doing with all this information? So I started uh, thinking about it and I wrote a law review article published by Northwestern University. Sure. And that is how the American Bar Association came to me because then it turned out that nobody else had published. I was the first person to publish on the topic in Latin America. Wow. And uh, not, not with the intent, but just by happenstance, right? Right, right. And, uh, and at this point in time, the topic had become a priority for both the United States. The United States devoted all kinds of funding uh, to human trafficking. And uh, there really weren't a lot of people who understood, who were American-trained lawyers who could fluently speak Spanish and were, quote-unquote, experts in the, in, sure. the, in the subject. I always use the, the quote-unquote with expert because... I, it was, in my view, I was more of the one-eyed man leading the blind, right? <laughs> um, I knew more than other people. Right. And so we took that and we worked very hard. I had an amazing team of people. Um, we had people from Puerto Rico. We had people from Ecuador. We had people um, working with us, uh, consultants. Now this uh, is here. Here in the United mm -hmm, States. Mm -hmm. So we ran that project for a few years. And then I was faced with one of the most important challenges of my life, which was, do you leave the foreign service and what do you do? Do you try to save the marriage or you just leave it? Because, you know, my... Because I can only imagine it's extremely, yeah. you know, time consuming. And yeah, my ex-wife wasn't too, now ex-wife, right? <laughs> wasn't too happy and she was like, uh, I don't know if I want to go to D.C. or New York with you. I had also a, a, a job offer from a large law firm. And I decided to open up a firm in Pilsen instead with some guys that I helped that I had helped out start out when I was at the consulate sending them cases and what have you. Um, and what was your motivation for starting something on your own? Why Pilsen and why not, you know, take the paycheck, go because, something secure? Well, here's the thing, you know, I, I at the time, remember this is post 9-11, I was deathly afraid of flying, <laughs> even though I was flying to South America every month, you know, for three years, almost three years, that was wow. a lot of flying. Um, and... Um, and, and some, nobody's going to pay you $150,000 to sit on your butt, right? Right, right? They expect you to produce, they expect you to do this. And I ran into a friend um, <clears throat> who worked at this firm in one of the offices in D.C. and said, like, oh, so I hear that. It's like, yeah, I don't see, really see you there, though. Really? You're going to go there? Is that what you want? Hmm. He didn't say it in a mean way. He just sure. said it like, because he'd known me and we've done, you know, for years. It was kind of uncharacteristic of you. And he said, I don't know if I see you in a big law firm. And I thought to myself, like, I guess you're right. I don't know if I really want to do that. And, <laughs> of course, my ex-wife was not happy with me when I told her. I was like, I'm turning down the job. She's like, what? You're going to turn down 150, $150,000 back then was a lot of money. Sure, sure. Still is, yeah. actually. No, yeah. Um, and I was like, yeah, billable hours. I'm like, eh, no, I'm going to go out on my own. And so I went in um, with some guys, uh, some Greek guys who had a firm in Pilsen. They had bought a building. And I came in and worked with them. And uh, so my first real estate transaction, right? And we were just asking about real estate earlier because, as you know, I do a lot of real estate sure. now. Um, 
was the purchase of the consulate that's right here now, Ashland. <laughs> I went to me. do that with the consulate. I was the chief legal officer, and we did that transaction. That was wow. my first real estate transaction. Wow. And then uh, some of the uh, of the f- people from the consulate also uh, bought places, so we helped them with that. Obviously, I didn't represent them directly because I was uh, the the lawyer. I would review their things, gotcha. and I would hook them up with guys who would give them a discount, that kind of thing. Yeah, so yeah. I started to kind of get people in the know. So <clears throat> when I opened up the firm, it was 2006. And if you remember, this is before it crashed. So um, so the uh, the market was pretty hot. So the first thing that we did was start doing real estate. And then people started sending me uh, immigration work. And even though most people know me because I, I do a lot of TV interviews for immigration, mm-hmm. um, and I feel so... Um, so thankful, actually, to my ex-wife is the one that hooked me up with that because she used to work for Telemundo. Interesting. And so through her friends is how I got that first opportunity. So she deserves that credit, right? Um, and then from there, those people then move on to Univision, and so we started doing that. Sure. Um, the reality is that from day one, what we've done most of has been corporate work and real estate. So Ohio State, even though my focus was international law, it's a very strong corporate law school most people that go there go and work for private firms right uh, and that's kind of like their strength right um and so i benefited from those classes and and working um under some great professors like uh, professor uh, morgan shipman who was general counsel of the securities and exchange commission he would teach a one-year-long corporations class and i decided to take it even though it had <laughs> nothing to do with anything i had an interest in but i thought wow. oh you have this great guy here why not right right, right. And look at me now. Had it not been for him, I would not be doing the the work that I'm doing. The other thing is a lot of great people in the community um, uh, gave me a chance. People I had met through the consulate. And um, when uh, my first job was uh, representing the guys from Lalos, you know, when they uh, decided to sell uh, the people Michael, who were buying, yeah. uh, no, 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 Lalo's when they were doing the uh, the franchises. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. So you know Maxwell Street and uh, Lyle and Glenview, mm-hmm. and most of the Lalo's that you know are not owned by the corporate Lalo's. Interesting. We help the the managers buy the franchises, and we help them uh, do the leasing or buy the buildings, and so. Uh, we were very thankful for that opportunity because that's how we started working with restaurants, and then okay. we, you know, we did Mercadito, and then we um, had to work with other great groups that you know, like Bonhomme Group, mm-hmm. um, who owns, of course, Beatnik and Disco, Black Bull, uh, and, Black Bull and all those great people. Mm-hmm. And we do some work for them, some corporate work. Danny, right? Isn't that Danny? Yeah. Danny, uh, although Danny runs himself, he doesn't need <laughs> me. He's got an <laughs> army of lawyers. But he was kind enough to also include us in his team, and um, and it's been an amazing experience to see real businesses, good people, and helping them put their businesses together. So it, even though it has nothing to do with the first part of my life as an attorney, right, which was the diplomatic world. Now here is the I gotta go back to this whole uh, 2007 thing. So we opened up the firm. I've been doing it for six months, doing primarily real estate and immigration work at this point in time, and. Um, <clears throat> I get a call from the Mexican Senate. Hey, you know, so we hear you're this great expert. Will you come back? And I'm thinking to myself, you didn't listen to me when I work for you. But sure, I'll come down. So we went down there. It's very gracious. Yeah, well, no, I mean, it, you know, human rights are important to everybody. No, sure, right? sure. Um, so I got to go to that. That was an amazing experience. And from there, the people from the OAS, the Organization of American States, really liked my presentation. 
and they contracted me to be part of their training team. So from 2007 through about 2012 or 13, we did about 19 countries on human trafficking. Wow. So I got to train with uh, the training team that did, uh, we, we were training primarily peacekeepers, you know, blue helmets for the United Nations. Mm -hmm. So we travel all over the Caribbean, all over South America, wow. um, Central America. It was a truly wonderful time uh, to, to do a little bit of my old diplomatic life in my new role as a uh, small business owner in Chicago. And I was only doing about five trips a year. That's why it took five years <laughs> to do all the trainings, yeah, right? Yeah. I recruited some of my mentees wow. from here and then trained them. And when I couldn't go, they would go. Uh, so it was fun, you know, we got to do uh, Olga Gutierrez, who now runs uh, governmental relationships for Apple, who's a very proud mentee. She was one of my training team. She would go and I couldn't go. Uh, so, so we try to stay connected to that world sure. to the extent that we could. Um, and then, you know, at some point in time, you just got to, you know, I have a child, you know, my daughter, my, who just turned 10 and, um, Happy birthday to your daughter. Yes. Thank you. And, uh, she's, she has spent that in quarantine with her dad for one day. Aww. So I was able to manage, uh, convince mom to let me hang out with her yeah. for the day. Um, we did hung out at home, didn't do anything, just yeah. played games and just, be with did each she other. blow out a candle at least? She did. Good. She did. I have very embarrassing video of that uh, <laughs> on her private little page on Facebook. She doesn't have a public page. But gotcha, yeah. gotcha. You know how it is. Of course, we've got to take care of the kids. That's right. Um, but yeah, so so she's my motivation, right? So you ask me, uh, why do I do what I do now? I do it for her. That's awesome. Uh, and it is a complete departure from what I did before. But you know what? I really enjoy what I do now. Um, I hate the part of the immigration system, and I hate it because it's very hard to help people who have no money. Sure. I mean, we have a mixture of people. We have corporate clients that really kind of help us pay the bill, you know, H-1Bs, investment mm -hmm. visas. That's really what pays the bills. Um, trial work, you know, um, deportation cases. Sure. But, you know, somebody who's here undocumented doesn't have ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 to pay you to do all the things you really need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very difficult. So where does that come from? Where does that desire to help others? Because I mean, it sounds like you've had, you know, a pretty good life. You know? Yeah, and, I have and, no complaints. Right? <laughs> um, obviously, you know, your parents coming from positions of stature and mm -hmm. um, responsibility. But yeah. you know, where, where does that come from to want to help others in, in less fortunate circumstances? Well, I think it comes from a culture of service that we have um, in my family. Everybody um, who's been so. So we've always had a mixture of government and private life, right? So my great-grandfather, one was a judge. He was in the Supreme Court of Mexico. Sure. And then the other one was also a diplomat. And then his kid was a diplomat. And then uh, some of the other people were judges. So we have doctors in the family. And we also have restaurateurs. You know, we have people who run, so who run uh, restaurants and they make good money. And But there's always been this... Um, call to service um, because when you I don't I don't think people understand that when you are a consular officer versus a diplomat right what you're doing is you're there to service people and it's a good balance you get to do really cool things like and hang out at parties right but the point of the party is what I don't think people get the point of the party so you can make the contact so you can get done what you need done absolutely it's not just to go get get wasted and have a great time which you do on on occasion 
the point is there's a strategic reason why you do that there's a strategic reason why you meet with people why you're having lunches um if that's really what you're there to do right so my parents always instilled in me this sense of helping people my mother did um and uh, i had the same job that my father did in chicago so my dad was posted at the chicago consulate in 1962 through 68 and he was the head of the protection department which is there where wow. i work so there's a mixture of, of that um I think that where my my parents were lacking was on the sense of understanding that private business is also a very good opportunity to help people. And so that's why I was talking about the immigration side. I don't think people understand that with the real estate, we help a lot of people. I, I really enjoy helping the families, uh, explaining to them how they do it. A lot of my clients that do real estate, I have to go back in and reorganize them. Wow because you know we have a lot of mixed status families and so a lot of people are like well i'm really not oh i don't really own this house it's really my brothers i'm like well there are legal ways that you can help somebody who doesn't have papers buy a house you don't have to do all of this underhanded stuff mm -hmm. you know because that's not okay it's illegal to do that stuff yeah. and down the line they will pay the price for that and so me being able to help them think of ways that are legal where they can set their situation in a way that they can protect themselves, organize the family in a way that those who don't have papers can benefit from the things that they're doing. Yeah. Um, it's important, at least. And, and me understanding the immigration system helps that a lot. Same with the businesses. So, well, that's I mean, it's incredible. And it seems not only that, I mean, I think you have such a good head on your shoulders, right? Thank you. And, then, and you're very calm in your demeanor. But you, know, you talk about things like... And very casually, and I don't mean to take away from it, but mm -hmm. you know, we talk about your father and having gone through cancer. I mean, those are very difficult things, and, and you just seem to be very calm, cool, and collected when it comes to that. Right. And, you know, talking about death row, and and I think that that's such an important thing to point out in terms of just just right. the way I see. You. I mean, just you know, the way you carry mm -hmm. yourself. How much of that, um, you know, one obviously comes from your parents, but are you are you teaching that to your daughter? And like, what what does that look like in terms of overcoming some of the things that? You know, she's going to be faced with, we're all right. faced with. Well, you know, I think that for us who are in charge of doing things, it's always difficult to open up and talk about the things that are important, right? I try to teach my daughter um, the things that are important. So, for example, for International Women's Day. I didn't know about International Women's Day until I worked for President Fox because, you know, hey, we got women and blah, 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 right? So get involved with that because I didn't know about any of these issues. Sure. I learned about them through work, and then I saw the importance of them. When I worked with human trafficking, I got to to uh, to work with women's issues and realize women's issues are human rights issues. Absolutely. And I truly see it like that. And in fact, when I was training with the with the OAS and the United Nations, what we were doing is I was the guy who would teach gender focus because they needed to have a guy talk about it because it's a human right. It's not some lady talking about it because she's a woman. No, that's not mm -hmm. how it works. Mm -hmm. uh, Lord knows I didn't know I was going to have a daughter. So, um, so for International Women's Day, I always try to take her to the Exceptional Women's Network events. That's amazing. And uh, she's kind of like the mascot now. She's kind of <laughs> only got a couple of years, right? Uh, but they welcome her, and it's a, a group of, of women who are out there doing their thing and talking yeah. to women, which I can't do. I'm a guy. So I try to teach my daughter, get involved with the things that are important to you. Sure. Uh, That's you know, such she, good advice. She's only 10. So, you know, you can only do as much as you can uh, with that. But one of the things that I am bad at, I've been trying to get better, um, 
and uh, th this is something that uh, you know I, I talk with with my girlfriend about you know Diana, uh, who's also my business partner, right? So we we do not in the law firm, but in some other businesses we have. Um, it's difficult for those of us who are always in charge of helping others to open up about things like the cancer, right? So um, when my so father, true, such it, a good it point, is it's really good point. Yes, uh, a big lesson for me was that so when. When I was in law school, my father got cancer, um, and uh, he survived for two years, and then he died the end of the summer of my second year going into my third year. And that summer, I had, remember I told you I had this this uh, fellowship? Mm -hmm. So the fellowship required me to have regular law school classes and additional classes in order for me to get the money. They would keep paying for my tuition and also give me a stipend. So it was important. Um, <clears throat> and... What happened with my dad was that he was here in Chicago and I didn't realize how bad things were going to get. So I did not make arrangements for me to take classes here, which never even occurred to me. So my classes were at Ohio State and my dad was like, no, you're going to stay at Ohio State. You're going to continue to do that. We've invested too much in your development for this to sure. happen. So I would come back and forth and back and forth and I would obviously talk to them constantly, whatever. The last couple of weeks of my dad's life were very complicated, you know, because they were at home. He was in hospice mm. and nothing to be done. And so the day before he passed away, I came up here and I and I wrote in and uh, literally the same bag that my mother packed for me when I got back to Columbus that night when he died, I ran to the plane and came back with the same bag. Right. And then I had to take charge of things because my mother sure. was in a bad situation emotional of course of course and um you know we had no family because all our family was abroad you know and i still spread have out right i mean they're all everywhere and i still have no family my only family is my daughter and my girlfriend really sure That's sure close family i have right sure. and and thankfully you know i have a lot of great friends you know marco sepulveda is my my best friend and he's always there he's in the same situation that i am right wow. nobody else so we support each other i think immigrants is what we do we Absolutely. find our friends become our family um, and so that was difficult. And so a few months later, I went back to law school. I thought I simulated everything. And so I would wake up in the middle of the night, like short of breath and with this pains in my heart. So I went to the doctor and the doctor said, nothing wrong with you. And when I was walking out the door, he said, oh, by the way, did anything happen over the last? No, no, nothing. So, well, my dad passed away. Wait, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> Come back <laughs> over here. So we sat down, we had a talk, and then he looks at me like, okay, I know what's wrong with you. It's like, so you're getting pain right here, right? Yeah, it's because you're getting, your, your ribs are inflamed. Yeah, that's what's going on. You're having panic attacks. Get out of here. I looked at him like, what are you talking about panic attacks? I'm the most composed person in this room. Sure. And he said, yes, your conscious is composed, but your subconscious is freaking out. No way. It's freaking so it was out. So just undealt trauma, basically? Is that what... It was, know? yeah, it was uh, vicarious trauma, you know, which I've also dealt with, with all the whole human trafficking, with the whole death yeah. penalty thing. I mean, the death penalty situation, you know, I mean, I got kicked out of here. It affected my Everything, marriage. Yeah. I ended up getting divorced. Right. There were consequences to a lot of the things. Uh, I'm not saying that that was the only reason, no, right? Of course, of course. But, but we do a lot of things, and I think that lawyers, we're really bad at taking care of ourselves. I think well, that's true for a lot of people, especially if you're in business for yourself. It's, you know, your business comes first and you come second. Right? Absolutely. And but if you're not good yourself, then your you business can't. Is not good. Exactly. <laughs> so when my mother died, um, 
I had just spent Christmas with her and um, she got sick. And, and my mother was also good at underplaying how sick she was, right? So it was wow. one of those like, wait, what? You know? And uh, she went in for a uh, for a service at the hospital and she died in uh, Dr. Vargas's arms. Remember Dr. Vargas who told me to write the article? Yeah. That was her doctor. Oh. And so he called and said, hey, um, you know, mom passed away. We had already made all the arrangements. We we knew this was coming. At some point in time, I didn't realize it would, it would happen like that. So I flew to Mexico City that same day. Got on a plane first thing in the morning. Flew out. I was from the moment my mom died to the moment I was next to her less than eight hours. Um, so anyway, so I got there. We take care of things, whatever. And years later, one of my friends who went to the funeral and all that, he said, you know what? I really admired... I, I was I was thinking the other day how how you handled that you just came in and took charge and you were consulting other people, you know because in our family when people pass away we're very happy we have pictures and we put on music and we're That's incredible. it's not it, it's in people More kind of, of freak celebration out. of life they're like we were like you know when my dad died here in Chicago we had uh, pan dulce and we had mariachi music and it was like Wait. people were showing up like what's going on here it was kind of weird yeah, it was kind of yeah. weird for most people but in our in our family because we spend so much time away from family we really cherish and celebrate each other which why not right yeah no it's incredible and so what i said to my friend um he he said um you know i really admire i can't believe you did that you know he was dealing with things with his mom at the time and i said well what you didn't get to see though is that, well, first of all, let's talk about this. You know, being um, uh, the only kid my mother had, I have brothers and sisters from my dad's previous marriages, so I do have some siblings. But it was my mom, so it was on me. I was her only kid. Sure. So who else was going to take care of things? <clears throat> so this was the moment to take care of things. When I came back to Chicago, I was sick for a week in <sighs> bed. I, I just crumbled, right? Well, that was my catharsis. And so that's a lot of things that people don't get to see. Of course. But uh, like I said before, this is the card that we were dealt and we just got to deal with things. But I do think that I've tried to learn, right? Try to learn that um, you need to open up more, talk about your feelings um, and address things a little bit more personally. Absolutely. No, and, that, yeah. and thank you for sharing that. I mean, I do appreciate that. I know it's not sure. not easy to live, but you know, also not easy to relive. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. So thank you. But, you know, in terms of, what the the state we find ourselves in now, Oof. right? Everything everything's different. I have seen really the worst, and in some cases the best, but mostly the worst of people. People are being very selfish and egotistical. Yeah. Uh, in very silly ways. I'll I'll give you an example if that's okay with you. No, please. So we're doing a deal where we were selling a property, and the city of Chicago shut down its services. Right. Mm -hmm. So the day they shut down the services. I asked for a zoning thing, and the zoning came back incorrectly. They just made a mistake. They, they were trying to pump everything out, and they just right. So I said to the other side, well, we can close. You know, it's the day before the closing. We were able to get the zoning, but they sent it to us incorrectly. Well, corrected, whatever. I was like, oh, we can't close. We are not going to close because, you know, that's the incorrect zoning, which is not an incorrect legal posture to have, right? Because sure. you're buying something, let's say, for three units and this is one unit that's not what you paid for right right now we had other documents we had title we had the assessors everything said three um 
it was a situation where the moment that they opened, we had everything to go in there and say, hey, you made a mistake, please correct it. And they did, by the way. The lender right, said, well, I'm sorry, you're going to have to pay for an extension and the seller should pay for it because you messed it up. I was like, wait a minute, we didn't mess anything up. Sure. We have nowhere to correct this. We have to wait. The government shut down. Um, we already did everything. We, we tried to call people, right? But it's just not going to get done. Yeah, right. No, well, you got to do it. And so they put us in a position where now we were we were in default because we couldn't provide the zoning. Wow. And my guy had to pay the extension for the lock. And the extension was somewhere along $1,400, a little less. So I tried to negotiate, well, let's do half and half, and you guys pay for half, and we pay for whatever. And I said to the to the lender, why don't you guys just waive that? That's an artificial thing. I mean, this is a force majeure situation, mm -hmm. right? Force majeure means something is happening like an act of God, right. like this kind of situation. Mm -hmm. This is literally the mm -hmm. definition of where you would this use. This is what it's used for. Yeah, this, this is what it's used protect, for. Right. It's like, do you want me to go into a contract fight over this? Right. You know, I mean, we'll pay something, but not all of this other stuff. They wouldn't do it. I came to find out they were funded by UW out of Michigan. I came to find out later that they are about $240 million. They say, I don't know, 100%, right? But uh, the people in the know have told me that they're about $240 million behind because sure. of everything that's going on. Yeah, makes sense. And that's understandable. But that was not the position they took. Right. That was not what they did. And so I, I saw people really take advantage of that um, in a way that was inappropriate to me. And people were unwilling to say, okay, I'll meet you halfway. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, we were able to work something better and we closed the transaction. And the moment that the city opened on the my daughter's birthday, uh, we got the zoning right away and we moved the transaction and we closed. Good. Um, but it was an unfair, truly unfair, I felt to my client for a mistake that, you know, uh, I ended up paying. Control, yeah. I paid for the zoning out of the other because I had to pay again. Wow. For the zoning. Mm -hmm. I, I ate that just to help out my client because I felt bad that uh, he had to pay $1,300. This was my way of helping out, even though it really wasn't my fault because sure, we sure. looked at did we fill out the application wrong? What, what happened, right? Mm -hmm. It was just something that happened another one flip side purchase the people buying are from another country so we're supposed to close on the 10th now as you know the country is closed until at least the 30th of april people can't come in absolutely okay so how are we going to do the transaction so then the seller was like oh well then you got to pay me three thousand dollars to extend it it's like it's a cash deal this is a cash deal. So mm -hmm. these people have already put down all the money. So all the money for the transaction. Are you kidding me? Was already, and then he wanted to charge them an additional three because we said, well, give us till the 29th so that they can be here. Yeah. So then, then he put his own attorney in a bad situation because then I said, then, okay, fine. Then we'll close on the date, but you have to accommodate. Yeah. So how are they going to sign? <laughs> They're not here. Right. Can they do an email closing? I don't know. No, we'll see. Yeah. But what I'm saying is I've seen people take those kinds of situations and try to take advantage of the situation. 
Okay, I'm currently representing maybe two or three people, three people that have had their tenants from before any of these announcements from the government that owed the, the rent from the beginning of March saying, we're not going to pay anything and there's nothing you can do about it, which is very different than you working with your tenants. Yeah. These are tenants saying, I'm going to take advantage of that and then you can't even evict me. Right. Well, and it sounds can. like what Cheesecake Factory did too. Something similar. They said, we're not paying rent. And this is Cheesecake Factory. This aren't just, you know, people who may have lost their jobs or whatever. I mean, I get the situation the industry's in, but you're right. Mm -hmm. And and I even noticed that crime was up. I thought it would go down significantly and it's actually gone up. So, you know, I I, I agree. I, I think you really get to see, you know, both sides of people. The good that, that's being done, but you also get mm -hmm. to see, you know, unfor the unfortunate side of, of the situation too. So, you know, what advice would you give people watching, you know, especially if they find themselves in that position, maybe, or maybe they are the person who's desperate and finding themselves doing things, you know, out of that fear, or, you know, being selfish. Yeah. Fear is only going to take you to make bad decisions. Absolutely. It's kind of like that saying, uh, you know, revenge is a played better self cold. You know, that comes from the fact that when you're mad at somebody and you just want revenge, you don't make good choices. You're right. You gotta like take it take easy, moment, right. think about it. I mean, I, I wouldn't suggest anybody take revenge on anybody. I'm just <laughs> saying as, as, a, as a concept, right? Right, right. Uh, when we are angry and we're, we're fearful, we don't make the best decisions. Right. Um, I think that there are a lot of deals going on now. I think people need to be respectful of each other. Uh, trying to take advantage of somebody else is not okay, ever. And it does come back. He does come back Always. because uh, first thing my client said, hey, who is that guy that didn't give us that extension or charges us? I'm never going to use them. Yeah. Right. And and they're real estate investors. This guy buys and sells a lot of real estate. So it comes back to uh, to bite you. So so you need to be careful. So my advice to people is read your contracts. <laughs> know what you're talking about. Don't take advantage. I also find that a lot of the people who try to take advantage don't really understand what they're doing because... Many of them are think that they're going to take advantage, right? And then they don't realize that maybe they're not in the best contractual position to do that, mm. or there could be consequences for doing that, sure. right? So um, that's why it's important to put everything in writing <laughs> and to have a negotiation up front. That's why we say um, uh, open friendships, right, uh, are based on clear accounting. I like that. So I don't think I've heard yeah. that one, but I like it. Well, Salvador, I really, really appreciate you coming. Give in. you an air, yeah, a little, air, little fist air fist bump. bump. Yeah, um, quite an incredible story. You know, I'm, I'm honored to know you, and always have a home here and with us, and you know, in our family here. I appreciate um, it. Thank you for yeah. having me. No, 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 my pleasure. Uh, thank you guys for watching. And if you'd like to to contact Salvador, you can reach out to him directly or click on the link below. And until next time, I'll see you soon. Adios. Uh,